everybody. This is the Legal Disclaimer, where we tell you that the views, thoughts, and opinions shared on this podcast belong solely to our guests and hosts, and not necessarily Brady or Brady's affiliates. Please note that this podcast contains discussions of violence that some people may find disturbing. It's okay. We find it disturbing too. Welcome back for a new episode of Red, Blue, and Brady. Today, we're talking about how one of the more disturbing responses to the coronavirus pandemic has been this rise of xenophobic and racist attacks on members of the Asian American and Pacific Islander, sometimes called the AAPI community. For example, incidents of of spitting at Asian Americans while people are walking while they're waiting for the subway have definitely created an atmosphere of discrimination. And in some cases, there have been attacks that have been exceptionally violent. So as a result, many media outlets have reported on members of the AAPI community purchasing firearms. To talk about the threat that xenophobia and those firearms can pose to the AAPI community, I am joined by the wonderful Kelly and the great David Inoue of the Japanese American Citizens League. Together, we're discussing why guns are not the solution to COVID-19 related hate crimes. So I guess to start off, uh, Kelly and David, can I have you introduce yourselves? Hi, everyone. This is Kelly Sampson. I'm counsel at Brady, where I focus on constitutional litigation and racial justice issues. And hi, I'm David Inoue. I'm the executive director of the Japanese American Citizens League, um, JCL. Uh, we are the oldest and largest Asian American civil rights organization in the United States, uh, founded in 1929, have focused on a broad uh, number of civil rights issues, um, initially started because of the discrimination against the immigrant Japanese com- Japanese and Japanese American community in the country. But obviously, during World War II, our largest the biggest issue that came up was the incarceration of Japanese Americans. And since then, we've used that story to largely speak out on other issues of civil rights, um, where we might find some intersection. One thing I want to emphasize is that we are not just Japanese Americans. That, as I mentioned earlier, what's kind of central to us now is that story of Japanese American incarceration. And I don't think you need to be Japanese or Japanese American to recognize the um, the atrocity that that was um, and, and what a violation of civil rights it was. So we welcome anyone who um, is aligned with our uh, of using that story to speak out for the, the civil rights of others today uh, to join us and to um, help to amplify that message. I do think it's important we talk sort of about that idea of inclusivity a little bit within a community as well, because so I know that the acronym most often used now is AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander community. But I want to be clear for all of our listeners that that is a huge community that encompasses a lot of different identities and a lot of different experiences. It's not a monolithic group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that I think for the Asian American community, what really kind of brought us together was um, I, initially the civil rights movement in the in the, throughout the 50s and the 60s. But specifically for an Asian American community, what was really galvanizing was um, the murder of Vincent Chin back in the the 80s, uh, quite a few years ago. Um, I still remember when that happened. 
But that was kind of, um, particularly for me as well, because I was growing up in Cincinnati where the federal trial for that took place. Um, and just for, for the listeners who don't know about Vincent Chin, he, he was a Chinese American living in Detroit who um, was out celebrating his impending marriage and then came across several out of work auto workers who blamed him for um, their unemployment. So this was during the 80s when the trade wars with Japan were at their peak. So they actually um, said that he was the reason because they thought that he was Japanese, Japanese, um, whereas in reality he was Chinese American. So they beat him to death that night. Um, they were actually pretty much released with a slap on the wrist in the murder trial, saying that both parties were um, at fault and that, that these were good, upstanding men and they just made this mistake, but that um, Vincent Chin had also perhaps provoked them. Uh, and, and they really got off without any sort of jail time or anything. Um, so the federal government then brought a civil rights case against them. I believe it was, this might have been one of the first times that this had happened. And that trial actually took place in Cincinnati where I was growing up. Well, and something that a lot of people have pointed to as a reason of perhaps why we're seeing a rise in these really xenophobic and these racist crimes has been in the positioning of the novel coronavirus as somehow tied to an Asian ethnicity. You know, for example, we have the president tweeting out that this is the Chinese virus, not COVID-19. Do you feel like we actually have seen a rise in crimes? Yeah, so there um, there are several different ways that we track this. One of them, uh, or there are several uh, websites where people can actually report incidents, um, whether they be crimes or incidents. And within the last, um, I believe it's three or so weeks, but up through this past Friday, there were over 1,600 incidents that have been reported since um, COVID had sort of um, come to the forefront. Um, and this is across the country. It's not not just crimes, but does include things that perhaps don't rise to a criminal level, or it could be workplace incidents as well. I, I know that, um, I, I don't know if I should probably call out my sister on this, but uh, my sister at her workplace, the rumor actually went around her workplace that she was the one who brought um, COVID into uh, into her city because um, she had we had we as a family had gone to Japan for a visit last year and this was back in August of last year and yet people knew that she had been gone that she had gone to Asia and, and therefore they were um, using this as an example of uh, or they, they were blaming her essentially for having brought it into the, into her community so th- these uh, the things are definitely increasing I think what's also heartbreaking is to see the how severe some of these crimes are. It's interesting because from things that I've read about this and also from hearing you just talk about like the story of your organization, there's this constant questioning of whether, you know, members of the AAPI community are citizens and part of the, you know, body politic. And it's interesting to see how on one hand, you know, our country will dehumanize people and put them forth as like a stereotype, but then on the other hand, be afraid and backlash and sort of say, you're not like us, you're not part of us. And it's, and you know, whenever there's a, th- a so-called threat, instead of considering, oh, we're all Americans, it's like, well, I don't know, you know, you're maybe not you. Yeah, actually, um, I mean, it's interesting you raise that because obviously Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate, came out with a op-ed a few weeks, uh, a couple of weeks ago, where he sort of exhorted Asian Americans to kind of do more. And, and he actually cited the example of Japanese Americans during World War II, how many of our uh, Nisei 
uh, second generation Japanese Americans. So they were actually American citizens, um, despite their families being incarcerated and imprisoned in the in the camps, stepped forward and, and fought for our country and, and became the most decorated per capita battalion in, in the army. And Andrew Yang kind of used this as the, look, this is what we, we need to be doing right now to have our uh, Nisei veteran movement. But the reality is that, yeah, the, the veterans did that, but for those who were killed in action, their families were still notified of their son's death behind barbed wire. Proving our Americanness does not make us American in the eyes of some still, that we will still be seen as foreign regardless, that uh, we aren't going to change racism by what we do. Racism, is, again, it goes to the irrationality. It's not going to look at an Asian American and say, oh, you are, you're being more patriotic, therefore I, I validate you as a human. <laughs> um, and that's not the way racism works. And what we need is for, for allies. Um, and that, that was really, I think, the lesson that we learned from on the incarceration experiences that the Japanese Americans were not going to be able to stand up for our own rights on our own. And likewise, other groups can't do that as well. That um, the only w the, the way the civil rights movement happened is by having a broad coalition of people recognizing the need for change and, and to really um, denounce this type of thing. And that's where we, we need allies to stand up to say, no, discriminating against people because of coronavirus is wrong. And then one of the reasons why we so very much wanted to talk to you in particular about this is because, one, some of these hate crimes against the AAPI community have involved firearms, but also we're seeing now an increase or at least media increase in covering this idea that increasingly members of the Asian community are purchasing firearms. And you had a beautiful piece, which I'll link to in the description of this episode, where you detailed how that is not an appropriate response and your concerns. And I was wondering if we could kind of go in and, and talk to you a little bit about what, what Kelly and I have talked about, which is unfortunately you can't shoot your way out of racism. You can't shoot your way out of, mm -hmm. of xenophobia. Yeah, I, obviously I, I, a violent response to violence is certainly not, uh, not an appropriate response. I, I think what's troubling for me, um, and I actually have a public health background, is that my fear is that we are essentially responding to a public health crisis that we are having with COVID by creating another one if people are going out and buying guns to protect themselves. I mean, handguns are, well, guns are uh, a leading cause of accidental deaths. It's more likely it's one of these people who probably has no experience with using a gun in the past, uh, thinks that they're going to get a gun to protect themselves, and it's more likely than not that gun will end up killing themselves or a family member. Um, I think that oftentimes guns and depression, we all know, are not a good combination. That can lead to suicide. Um, and if there's one thing that this crisis is creating a lot in people, it's depression. Um, and whether it's people being alone, whether it's just the hopelessness of the situation as people are unemployed or issues at home I and mean, domestic violence, adding a gun to these types of situations is simply not the right thing to be doing. Well, and I think that goes back, though, to the idea as well as, as with gun violence is that if you are a gun owner, Mm -hmm. I think now is the time to sort of speak up about responsible gun ownership. Mm -hmm. So letting people know that if you are buying a gun for the first time, here's how you can store it properly. Here's how you can safely have a gun in the home. If you have children in your home, here are people you should be calling. If you're mm -hmm. very worried because you're under a lot of financial stress right now, <laughs> you're under a lot of familial mm -hmm. stress that has to be present too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that's and that goes beyond even just addressing the gun issue, and that's addressing the other societal issues that we do have. I, it is the um, the strings that families are under right now um, of parents who are trying to get their work done during the day, but also um, trying to make sure their kids are getting their work done too. Um, it's the the mental health issues, making sure that people have access to counseling, which is even again is made even more difficult because all those sessions are probably also happening over video conference call versus going into a therapist's office. And and, and when you mention um, the education on gun ownership, and it's making sure that people do take those steps if they are going to make this uh, po- possibly life changing decision. Um, I, even if even if, if a gun is used in the way it's intended to protect oneself, that has huge implications for somebody for their future mental health. I mean, the, to take someone else's life or to even injure them with a gun is not mm-hmm. something you take lightly. I mean, that's, I mean, that is a huge decision you are making when you are bringing a gun into your home because a gun only has one purpose and that's to either kill or injure. Um, another living thing, um, unless all you're doing is using it for target practice against uh, with cans in the back uh, backyard or something. Um, and in which case, why aren't you hoarding those cans? We might need those cans. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people are going through a lot of cans right now as they're eating <laughs> eating through their uh, that's that's their true. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, a gun only has one one use, and, and when you are making that decision, you are essentially making the decision that I am willing to take somebody else's life. Um, and um, I, I, um, I oftentimes mention the fact that I'm a conscientious objector, and the reason why is because it, it's just unfathomable for me to take someone else's life, whether that would be to serve in the military or just in any other capacity that. Uh, for me, at least, that, 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 that's, that's a, something that I could never do. This idea, yeah, the idea of guns to protect yourselves. I, I've heard people say that, oh, if Japanese Americans had guns to protect themselves during uh, World War II, the incarceration would not have happened. It's like, no, that's, the, the, and that's a ridiculous argument to make. I mean, had Japanese Americans owned guns and tried to use them to protect themselves, the U.S. Army would have gone in and shot them all. And that's not, that's not the way this works, or at least for minority communities. I, right now we're seeing these um, militias or whatever who are um, protesting in several states um, with the shelter in place orders, and they are openly parading around with guns. But if you were to have minority communities do that, um, our, our police would not stand for that. Um, and it's a very different dynamic when you are a white person with a gun and when you are a minority person with a gun. Kind of along the lines of responding, you mentioned um, a little bit earlier how, you know, no group of people can really advocate or win rights for themselves or whatever for themselves without allies. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about what it would look like to be an ally, especially now that we're kind of all in our homes. Like if you're someone who cares and you want to speak out against xenophobia, you know, what are some ways that you could do that? Well, I think that uh, I'm, for one thing, so much happens on the internet, whether it's uh, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. I think if people are engaged in those types of discussions, I think too often there are conversations that happen where crazy aunt or uncle starts spouting something out and 
people are not willing to really confront them or it, it becomes the the token minority person who does speak out and then quickly is told, oh, you're being too sensitive or you're just trying to stir up trouble. You're you like calling everybody a racist. But for people who perhaps don't want, think that I don't want to get involved in that discussion, that, that is when we need you to get involved in those discussions. Because un- unfortunately, right now, the internet is has become kind of the way that we all do communicate. And we're doing this over Zoom right now, <laughs> uh, which is, yeah. coming, it's become the de facto uh, communication means for everybody right now. And my kids are on Zoom more than I am, it seems. So I, I think it is for people who, particularly people who are not uh, people of color, to be able to speak out. I think that there are those times where we are out in the public as well, that I've heard just in the last week or so of people going to grocery stores and being confronted in the aisles. Um, I think it's it's incumbent upon corporations to train their employees uh, to recognize when this is happening so that they can step in. But also that if you are a bystander who sees something happening, to also step in and stand up for that person. And maybe it's recording it or something like that to, to make sure that, uh, that there, there's some sort of evidence later. I oftentimes use the example in CPR training that one of the first things you're told to do is to identify someone to, first of all, call, call 911. That people will not oftentimes do things on their own. And I think this is the same type of situation where people need to be called out and said, hey, you need to stand up and say something. A trend that I'm hearing and seeing is that, you know, when white Americans fear for their safety, they can rely not only on official law enforcement channels, but also this kind of notion, at least, of, you know, self-defense and self-protection and both of those are kind of like they don't necessarily go unchallenged like we're seeing these protests where people are standing in front of the capitol brandishing weapons and yet you know for americans of color and you know the api community you may not be able to count on law enforcement to protect Mm -hmm. you in the same way and that may be driving some of these fears then your gun usage is probably not going to go the same way as uh, white Americans because we are in a racist structure. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, just the... The relationship between perhaps uh, law enforcement and uh, people of color. um, And one of the things I, I, anecdotally, of course, that I've been hearing is that oftentimes there are people who are having these encounters where they are feeling threatened um, by somebody, and then they do report it to the police, and the police are like, well, no crime has been committed, so there's nothing I can do, just go about your life, and, and I think it's that dismissiveness, um, and, and a lot of that is, and perhaps there has not been a crime, but generally if a threat is made of any sort of violence, that, that, that is a crime itself, um, any sort of threat, so the the quickness with which I think law enforcement oftentimes dismisses the concerns of so many um, uh, Asian Americans when they are confronted by this type of um, either harassment or violence or whatever, um, oftentimes leads, uh, it discourages them from actually reporting things as well. And I think that then that sense of helplessness is what leads to the, well, I need to get something to protect myself um, because the police are not responding to me. Um, and we appreciate the fact that the, um, the FBI did come out with a, a, 
uh, sort of a recommendation to all their offices to be on the lookout for increasing um, uh, crimes against Asian Americans. Um, but again, uh, but the problem with a lot of that is so much for the FBI and for the uh, Department of Justice, so much of that is on the back end that it is the, uh, we're, we'll prosecute these things once they happen. Um, and what we need is the community policing to actually be in the community, to be protecting people. And, and to also understand where some of these, um, these ideas are fomented um, in white supremacist groups that are, that are using this situation now to um, try and promote more division and to um, promote um, their, their own ideology over any sort of um, actual public health concerns. And I think that the thing with COVID is that it is really revealing so much in our society right now of uh, the disparities that do exist, um, whether it be in um, attitudes towards one another as we're seeing with the attitudes against Asian Americans, I think the response of the healthcare system um, particularly in communities of color um, and the, the mortality rates that we're seeing for African-Americans is just unbelievable um, relative to other communities. Um, and, and, and this also goes to uh, gun violence too, that the gun violence impacts communities of color often in very different ways that it does um, uh, white communities as well. Yeah, I think COVID has pointed out in numerous ways, sort of a lot of the structural inequalities that have been present for a really mm -hmm. long time, but for a yeah. lot of individuals who don't live with those inequalities, maybe weren't aware of them, mm -hmm. uh, maybe purposely not aware of them, but they've made very, been made very present. Yeah. Well, I think actually even in, within the Asian Pacific American community, we're even seeing this uh, revelation that there are many um, Asian Americans who have bought into this, uh, into the model minority myth idea that um, we, we are, they see themselves as being essentially white, that look, I fit in, I've made it, I am doing well as an Asian American, but that doesn't protect them from the racism that now is being directed towards us as a community, um, that it, do, it doesn't matter what your ideology is, how successful you might be, that people still see that Asian face. And I think that it is impacting some Asian Americans now that perhaps did not recognize um, racism in the past. And um, my hope is that it might um, help to kind of bring some of those members of the community around to recognizing that um, we do need to work together to, to fight racism. That it's not something that you can beat by, um, by your own actions, that, um, that it is in the hearts of other people that, um, that they have that hatred. I mean, super well said. I cannot thank you and Kelly enough for, for coming on today and for helping us start talking about like this really complicated topic in a very complicated time. Looking for more gun violence prevention content? Try Audible. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. With free apps for every type of phone and device, you can access your books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Right now, I'm still listening to Fist Stick Knife Gun by Joffrey Canva because it's great to re-listen to a book you love while going for those long isolation walks. Brady listeners can get a special 30-day trial and free audiobook by going to www.audible.com slash Brady at home. Thanks for listening.
As always, Brady's life-saving work in Congress, the courts, and communities across the country is made possible thanks to you. For more information on Brady or how to get involved in the fight against gun violence, please like and subscribe to the podcast, get in touch with us at bradyunited.org, or on social at BradyBuzz. Be brave, and remember, take action, not sides. <laughs> <laughs>